Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John discussed how he used footage from the jinx in mapping out his case, as well as his team's approach to the jury selection process in the Durst trial. In this episode, he discusses the preparation of his initial opening statement to the jury, as well as the negotiation with the defense over various pretrial stipulations, including the stipulation that Robert Durst wrote the cadaver note. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. And sometimes, if you can hear heavy traffic rushing by, that's because John is doing the call during one of his early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit John Lewin's initial opening statement in the trial, you can find our coverage of it in the first eight episodes of season one of the Jury Duty podcast. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Lastly, when John refers to Ethan, he means the audiovisually savvy Deputy DA, Ethan Milius. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. Tell me about preparing your initial opening statement in the trial, the one back in March of 2020. So that was all Ethan and I, and we met for, so remember, we had prepared the original filing PowerPoint to the case that we had prepared to show my chain of command. That was the basis for what became the opening. The opening was five times longer. And what I wanted to do was very clear. Number one, introduce jurors to who Bob Durst was. Who is he? You gotta understand who he is. He's an entitled, spoiled, egocentric, I don't have to live by the rules individual. Now, a lot of these moron commentators thought, oh, Lewin's just trying to, you know, muddy him up, which is absurd. A, no one's gonna convict somebody of murder and believe he's involved in three homicides because he's a jerk. It was important that the jury understand who he was because who he was dictated all of his behavior, including some behavior which is very nonsensical, which, you know, if there were better lawyers on the other side, we might have had to explain more. So the first thing is, A, go out and let the jury know who Bob is. B, let the jury know who Kathy is. Have Bob and Kathy intersect. 
explain how the original relationship was. That you know they were happy, but that Kathy was very young. And Bob was much older. He was basically thirty years old, and she was still a teenager. So Bob had all the control and all the power in the relationship. And then as Kathy started to mature and started to become successful, the power dynamic changed, and Bob didn't handle it well. So then it would get into, we'll demonstrate domestic violence. Why are we going to demonstrate domestic violence? Because in the end, we're going to argue that Bob Durst killed Kathy, and domestic violence is relevant in any homicide case where you are charging somebody with or arguing that somebody committed a homicide against their wife under California law, you are allowed to bring in episodes of domestic violence between them. And that includes emotional as well as physical. So bring that stuff in. Bring in the Peter Schwartz incident. People are like, what does that have to do with it? So under California law, you are allowed to bring in violence that is committed against a third person in front of your victim. If the theory is that that is a means of controlling, if it's part of the cycle of domestic violence, and any expert will tell you, and it was very clear on this, Bob attacked Peter Schwartz because he didn't like Peter Schwartz talking to his wife. So one aspect of that is Peter Schwartz, obviously, and what Bob's doing to him. But the second aspect is, is that the message that he's sending to his wife is, I own you. So we want to show that violence. So an assault by somebody on an individual who is spending time with their spouse or domestic partner, it's not just an attack on that individual. It's an attack on the partner because you are basically conveying to the partner, you will talk to who I say you can talk to, when I say you can talk to them. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen. So there's authority under California law. What's interesting is the defense never filed a motion to oppose any of the domestic violence with Kathy. Not one motion. Now, we we filed the motion. It was granted, but they didn't file an opposition. Next, we had to show who Susan was. And we wanted to explain Susan's upbringing because Susan's upbringing particularly her mob connection with her father, would explain how she viewed herself and why she ended up not saying anything, why, you know, she didn't go to the police, and why Bob would have felt he could trust her. We wanted to explore how Bob and Susan had met, how close they had been, what that relationship was. Then we wanted to show Susan's life and how basically she kind of peaked when she sold her story and when she moved out to Los Angeles and after that it was all downhill. So then we needed to show kind of how Susan's life is heading really down the shitter and uh, meantime uh, Bob is in New York and we wanted to show that once Susan made the call that in essence she owned Bob. Whether it was subtle, whether it was direct, whether it was intentional, Susan knew that she had the goods on Bob. Bob knew Susan had the goods on him. And even though I never I never have thought that Susan explicitly was attempting to blackmail Bob, I think that Susan understood that she had leverage. So we wanted to make sure we got that out. We then wanted to get out how the reinvestigation really created the event where Bob was forced to act. So now they are reinvestigating what Bob's response to the reopening of the case well, most husbands would, would be great. They're going to solve my wife's disappearance. Bob is admitting, oh, no, 
you know, I heard that. I went home and threw up, and then he flees to go live in Galveston as a mute woman in a $300 a month, you know, uh, tenement. So we then wanted to show how Bob and Morris Black, how that relationship developed, and how Morris Black knew who Bob was, what his backstory was, and he was the one person to connect Bob to the apartment in Galveston, and that Bob was terrified he was about to be charged. We wanted to show that the evidence that had been put on in Galveston regarding how Morris died was incomplete, that Bob had impeached himself, and we knew, as soon as we talked to our reconstructionist and went through Bob's testimony, we knew that Bob had repeatedly perjured himself, and we were going to be able to prove without question, that Bob had murdered more flat. It was not an accident. It was not how he described it. We knew that the dismemberment was going to be important because there were parallels to getting rid of a witness. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now we return to my conversation with John Lewin as he continues to list his priorities in preparing his initial opening statement in the trial. As we resume, Lewin is noting the significance of Susan Berman telling Robert Durst that she was going to talk to the NYPD about Kathy Durst's disappearance. We knew that when Susan told Bob that the cops had contacted her, or NYPD had contacted her about Kathy, that that was the conversation that sealed her death. That Bob understood, uh-oh, I know Susan. Susan will end up spilling the beans, which was true. We had that from Steve Silverman. We had that from, I believe, Dan Goldberg. Anybody who knew Susan knew that even if she wanted to protect Bob, there's no way she wouldn't have given it up. Now, it turns out that she had told eight or nine different people before that ever happened, something Bob didn't know. So we knew that Bob's response after killing Morris and going to Pennsylvania and his horrific conduct at Wegman, he was going to shoot the security guard, the law entity officer, or the police officer. He was going to he was going to try to escape. And we knew that was going to be very clear. We knew that on his tail call, he was talking about that he was going to kill Douglas. So when you put all that stuff together, we felt we had an extremely compelling case, but it was very long. But I always knew that it's, an, it's so interesting that giving the jury a very complete idea and opening of where the case was going to go, I could tell I was there. They were not bored. They were not asleep. They were attentive the entire time. Because it's a fascinating story. That's why people go see movies. That's why this, this, uh, the Gene Sister Well on HBO. So that's what we wanted to do in opening. Ethan and I put in hours and hours and hours and hours. And Ethan's ability to basically, you know, take what I wanted to put in opening and to, and to have the visual and to put it together as artistically as he did, he's the best. 
how did you make decisions about what to include and what to hold back for trial? I hold almost nothing back. That's not my style. My thing is, I believe in the, uh, to go back to the first Gulf War, I believe in shock and awe. My goal is, in opening statement, I'm going to absolutely overwhelm the jury and the defense with what we have. They're going to feel like they are just being obliterated. And the only thing that will be left after opening is for, is for I'm basically writing a huge check, is for the jury to make sure I have the money in the bank. And we also do it this way because we know that, generally speaking, the defense is going to end up having to immediately follow us and that most of them, and it's not a very smart move, they will feel like, wow, that really hurt us. So we have to get up there and we have to respond to it. In actuality, that's not exactly the best thing to do because unless you can match what we've done, it's just going to be compared and you ought to wait, reserve your opening until the uh, defense case so you know where things are at. But so we didn't hold anything back. We hit them with almost everything we had. The few things we did not hit them with, there were statements that Bob had given. I didn't mention that he was faking the dimension. I didn't mention that he had written a letter where he was going to fake the eye problem. Certain statements that Bob had given, which were very damaging, which I knew he didn't remember, and I knew that the defense either never had read or had forgotten, I didn't want to clue them in advance they were coming. So the only things I left out were things that I wanted to hit Bob with so that he would not be prepared to address them. Can you talk to me about the way that you negotiated pretrial stipulations with the defense culminating in the stipulation that Bob wrote the cadaver note? So very early on, I pushed the stipulation, and the defense wasn't interested. And early on, the team was like, why are we even bothering? They're not going to agree. And then we start to notice a pattern, is they would say, I'm not going to stipulate that. And then we would start whatever we're going to do, and they'd say, I'm not going to stipulate that. And then halfway through it, they would say, can I please stipulate that? So what we realized at the end, for whatever reason, they were very likely to a lot of the stuff that we had. And what I would tell them in particular, one of the big issues was that it was my belief that the conditional examination were much more powerful in their edited form with all objections taken out than it would have been to have those witnesses come back and testify. So my view was every conditional examination went extremely well that it would be very difficult to repeat it as good, but that even if we did, there would be objections, et cetera, and if we could get the defense to agree to it, we would benefit. This is all before COVID. So the way that I sold it to the defense was that Emily Altman, you can bring her back out, but in the end, there's nothing she can she can do to undo the damage she's done. And by the way, if you bring her out, we know this case far better than you do. So you got to ask yourself, if you bring her out, what are you going to do with her, and will it not just get worse? And also, what will be the impact of her being live? What we're giving up is she's not going to be here. So it's on TV. It's not nearly as powerful. That's how we sold it. I didn't really believe that. I thought it would be very powerful. And so the defense ended up stipulating to a bunch of those witnesses. 
they also ended up stipulating to a lot of other things that they knew that we were going to be able to prove and that they don't want to waste the time. Heading into the trial, there was some speculation in the press that the defense was going to vigorously attack the authenticity and integrity of the audiovisual material collected by the filmmakers of the Jinx. Lewin next discusses how he got Robert Durst's lawyers to agree to stipulate that this material was in fact authentic. The most important stipulation early on was we spent a fortune, LAPD did, having the important audio and video analyzed by outside outside experts. I think we spent more than $100,000, maybe $150,000, to have that those recordings verified that they had not been edited. Because we expected that the defense would hire some expert. They would come in and they would say that, oh, all this was edited. Bob never said that. So at some point coming up to trial, I said to the defense, hey, listen, here's the situation. If you are going to put on experts to dispute that this evidence has not been altered, you haven't given us any discovery. I don't think you've done it. You were supposed to have already done this work years ago. And if I don't get a signed agreement by X date, then what's going to happen is I'm not going to agree to a stipulation. And I'm going to put on three weeks of testimony demonstrating that all this stuff is legitimate, and you're going to get up there and have nothing to say, zero. So it's going to take an extra three weeks. And let's face it, it was very clear that they never wanted to be in court. Anytime they could take off for Vegas or Texas, they were gone. So they ended up eventually after they would always say, we're not going to do that. Eventually they would say, yes, we'll do that. There were certain witnesses that they agreed. They said they would never stipulate to. One of them was Linda O. One of them was Nick Chavis. We made the decision, even after they had repeatedly said they would not stipulate to Nick Chavis. We did all the editing of Nick Chavis. We all went through checking to make sure what shouldn't should come in. And then Ethan had to actually do the editing on Avid, very complex. And we did it. At that time, we didn't have a stipulation, but we knew that at the last minute, they will likely agree. And so we invested the time knowing that if we didn't, we wouldn't have had time to turn it around. So the stipulations were huge in this case. And why they stipulated the way they did, you'd have to ask them. I can tell you this. Bob made it pretty clear he wasn't happy about it. Yeah, it seemed that Bob was particularly irritated about the stipulation to Emily Altman's testimony. But let's step back and give me a kind of detailed blow-by-blow of the steps that led to the stipulation to the cadaver note. So the cadaver note, we had gone so very early on. One of the first things that I did when I got this was I knew that there were problems with the original LAPD analysis. So I wanted to find the best people in the world who were completely unconnected, and I wanted to give them all of the raw stuff we had. So now we had many more exemplars. We had the envelope that George and I found in evidence in October of 2013, the third Beverly Hills envelope. There's actually three. That was the third one. And that envelope actually goes to the check that Bob sent Susan in in November of 2000, right before he killed her. So I ended up finding some of the best analysts in the world, and we paid them a lot of money 
to do a completely objective analysis. So they weren't given any of the prior reports by anybody. It was a completely clean analysis. And they came back with identifications. Bob wrote the cadaver note. The cadaver note was naturally executed. That became extremely important because the cadaver note was naturally executed. That means that it was not forged. If it was not forged, that means that somebody would have had to have had the exact same kind of writing as Bob had and would also have just so happened to have misspelled Beverly the way that he did. So we did that early on. We then put pressure on the defense for the next several years. You know, we had all kinds of handwriting battles in court. And what the defense did, and, and in my opinion, extremely ineffectively, is they challenged the handwriting not by bringing in a handwriting expert to say that Bob didn't write it, but by bringing in a lawyer who basically gets paid to attack uh, handwriting to say that handwriting is not valid that it's not appropriate, that it's too easy to manipulate, et cetera. They apparently were unaware of the California Evidence Code, which specifically has sections that mandate that not only can you bring in an expert to testify to handwriting, but that under California, the jury can actually be their own expert. It's one of the only areas where you can literally say to the jury without an expert, hey, look at the writing. It's his. You can make that determination. In addition, they did not cite the one case that, as soon as you look at handwriting, it's a California Supreme case, court case. It's, it's the only one that's out there. That case had absolutely just drilled their same expert, saying that he was not competent to testify. So they spent a bunch of money on an expert to attack handwriting in California. They tried to use a bunch of Wisconsin cases, which have no authority in California, and they did not know or did not present to the judge the California authority, which not only was completely contrary to their position, but which savaged the very expert they were bringing in. So eventually, when they lose every battle for handwriting, and they renewed it, we had 27 different battles. And then the next thing they wanted to do was they wanted to introduce the LAPD analysis. If you remember, originally, the first analyst had said that Niall Brenner was highly probable that he wrote the note. And then his supervisor had independently signed off on that finding. Well, at some point in time, a trainee had looked at the results and had come to the supervisor saying, hey, I don't understand how you made this, this match. I don't see it. She then looks at it, ends up realizing, nope, that was not a correct match, and they correct it. And then at some point after that, they end up identifying Bob Durst that it's highly probable he wrote it. So when we went back, one of the things that I needed to do was figure out what happened with LAPD. So we went back to the original analyst. He was retired. We went out to Las Vegas. He was a very good guy. And he said, hey, listen, I made a mistake. Niall Brenner wrote in all caps block letters, just like the cadaver note. And when he signed the log to be interviewed by detectives, they saw that, brought it to him, and got very excited that he had written the cadaver note. So he made a mistake. It was a mistake of confidence. You know, he missed it. It's certainly a problem, but he had said years earlier, nope, Niall Brenner didn't write it. Now, we then interviewed the supervisor. And I was shocked when the supervisor says to me, I'll never forget this myself, Habib and, and Detective George Shamlian, she says to us, oh, oh, no, I never actually looked at it. The other analyst was a really good analyst, so I just kind of signed off on it. 
I, I was in shock. I mean, I could not believe it. I mean, it is a complete dereliction of her primary responsibility. She should have been fired on the spot. You know, I mean, that's just – that is an omission not of competence but of credibility and trustworthiness. So the defense, though, even though they knew all this, they wanted to put on the evidence from those two analysts. The problem is it didn't meet the standard because one analyst had admitted that he had been incompetent and the other one admitted that she had never even reviewed it. So they only wanted to put it on to try and basically, you know, muck things up and make the LAPD look bad. So eventually when the defense loses every motion, we are now a few weeks from starting jury selection in late December. I call up the defense, and I've been doing this for months and months, saying, okay, you've not given us any expert that's going to be able to testify. The judge has already said your lawyer can't testify. He's not an expert. By the way, had he testified, we would have absolutely destroyed him because he's not a handwriting expert, and he's been criticized by the uh, California Supreme Court. I mean, we would have had a field day with him. So you haven't brought hired an expert, so what are you planning on doing? No response. Well, here's the situation. You have until until whatever day it was, I think I gave him three days, to sign a stipulation that Bob wrote to get out of Or if you don't, I'm going to put on all of our handwriting experts. That's going to take weeks. And, again, you're going to have nothing you can do. So they signed it. Now, one of the real – disingenuous things that DeGarren did was he got up in opening statement and he said something like, well, of course Bob wrote the cadaver note. We all know that. And I'm thinking, wait, what? Is this the same guy who's been staying for years? He didn't write it, litigating motion after motion. So we had planned our opening statement, and this was, a, I think, a, a really good move, to present the handwriting history as it happened. So that basically we would tell the whole story, including Bob, you know, faking exemplars in Galveston, so that the jurors understood at the end that when Bob is stipulating that he wrote the cadaver note, he didn't have a choice. He was caught. He was trapped. So that's the history of some of the stipulations. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John discusses the pre-pandemic live witnesses of the trial, including the testimonies of Ann Anderson Doyle, Marvin Karp, and the dramatic direct examination of Robert Durst's brother, Thomas. Again, in the event that you would like to revisit John Lewin's initial opening statement in the trial, you can find our coverage of it in the first eight episodes of Season 1 of the Jury Duty Podcast. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.